turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. You know, I, I love the Christmas season. I love all the things that come along with it. It's, it's a really fun time of year. And, and what makes Christmas, you know, really extra special is the different traditions that we have. Like, there are certain things we know that you probably do in your family, like clockwork, every year. You've been doing it for a long time. And, and there are some traditions that I understand. We spend time with family. We eat good food. We sing songs and look at lights. Those make logical sense to me. But there are some traditions that I do not quite understand. Like you got to admit, there are some Christmas traditions that are a bit unusual. Like, I'm wondering, how did this start? Who, who came up with this? For example, let, let's just start with the obvious. Who was the first person to cut down a tree and put it in their house? Like, I'm imagining the way I see it going down is some husband who really wants to make the holidays special, and he hasn't been the best husband to his wife lately, so he's trying to think of something, you know, nice to do for her. And he thinks, you know what? I'm going to go cut down a tree and put it in the house. <laughs> He's going to love it, right? And he does, and he cuts it down. He brings it in the house, and his wife's like, what are you doing with the tree in the house? And he's like, this is for you, babe. <laughs> I want to do something special. That's a tree. What are we going to do with a tree in our house? Well, why don't we, you know, put some lights on it, some little trinkets we can hang on it. It's a tree in the house with, like, bugs and animals. Isn't that kind of strange? Okay, so that's, that's probably not how Christmas trees became popular. But that's a story I like to tell myself. I love, I love having a tree up, having the lights. Anybody have a real tree? We, we do the fake tree in my house. You're brave if you do the real tree. That you, you really love Christmas. But I still think it's a little bit unusual <laughs> to put a tree in your living room. There's also hanging the stockings from the mantle, from the fireplace. Who started having their laundry hung on the mantle? Think about that. Who did that? And then they decided, hey, let's put some stuff in there, right? And let's surprise everybody. It's a little unusual. And don't get me started this morning on the mistletoe, ugly sweaters, fruitcake, elf on the shelf, eggnog, and the weirdest song of all time, which is the song 12 Days of Christmas. I'm sorry. Look, if someone were to get me swans, geese, hens, doves, and a partridge in a pear tree, that would be a little much, okay? And not to mention, I still don't know what a Yule log is. Anybody know what that is? I don't know. My point is... Many of these things that we do, they've become traditions. We've accepted them. We don't stop to think about where they came from or how they got here or how unusual they might seem to someone who's never celebrated Christmas before. And, you know, the, the biblical Christmas story in Scripture is really not much different. I think we tend to, to do the same thing. We, we've heard it so many times. We become so familiar with it that we, that we miss how truly unusual this story is. We saw last week in our very first week of Advent that an angel appeared to two different people to announce an unexpected pregnancy. The first was a guy named Zechariah. He was a priest and he was pretty shocked because he and his wife were of a significant age. It's a nice way to put it. And he had not, they had not been able to have kids. The other one was a young girl named Mary who was even more shocked because, well, she was a virgin. She was saving herself for her future husband, Joseph. But what made these two pregnancy announcements even more unexpected was what the angel had to say about these two boys. One named John was going to make people ready for the coming of the Lord, like God coming here to us. That seems like a big deal. 
until we learn that the second baby named Jesus was God coming to us here. He was the Savior of the world. So this whole scene, it's meant to be startling and surprising because although the people of God were looking for a Savior and salvation, no one saw things unfolding this way. This morning, we're going to continue walking through Luke's account of the coming of Christ with a message titled, Behold the Unusual. Look with me at Luke chapter 1. Let's read verses 39 through 45. In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a, with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We can only imagine here the emotions that Mary must have felt when she heard the news from the angel. I'm guessing that she probably wanted to talk to someone. That's typically what we do when we find out something crazy. We want to talk to someone. So it seems that one of the first things she did was go talk to her older and wiser relative, Elizabeth. Elizabeth had also been mentioned by the angel, so I'm sure she wanted to see for herself that Elizabeth was indeed pregnant too by a miracle. So Mary enters the home, and as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, did you, did you see what happened? The baby leapt, leaped. Is it leaped or leapt? Leapt, thank you, leapt in her womb. We talk about beholding the unusual. If you've had kids like I have, I've felt my kids kick in the womb. Like I've been pretty startled with a, with a kick. I, have not, I don't know what I would do. Like leaping is another level. John the Baptist, before he's even born, he's already fulfilling his purpose. He's doing what God called him to do, to announce the coming of Jesus in the womb. Strange. We also see that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, which is also incredible. We know today all of us as believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but this was before that. Not everybody had this kind of experience with God. So, so God moves in her in this, this special way, and she cries out this prophetic word about Mary. She says, Mary, you're blessed by God. And most importantly, she identifies Mary as the mother of her Lord. Did you see that? This language is really significant because that word Lord in the original language of the Bible, it's the same word we see in the Old Testament for the word Yahweh, the name of God. So Elizabeth is, is identifying Jesus as being God. How did she know this when Mary had just gotten pregnant? Elizabeth knows this because God has revealed it to her. She's been filled with the Holy Spirit and her immediate response in this situation is to bring praise to Jesus as Lord. Again, imagine this young virgin girl hearing her older, wiser relative, probably someone she had looked up to for all of her life, saying all these great things about her and her baby. What was going through her mind? What was she thinking and feeling? Well, thankfully, we get a little insight into Mary's heart. Luke actually recorded for us Mary's response as she breaks out into what many historians believe was a song. It's come to be called the Magnificat. You might see that heading in your Bible. That title is based on the first word in the Latin translation, which is Magnificat. That means magnify. 
And this song is interesting. It's, it's not exactly what you might expect from Mary. It's a bit unusual because it, it kind of flies in the face of how we typically view and think of Mary. Mary in the nativity scene is often portrayed as being this silent, sweet figure. She's calm and composed, and she's just going with the flow, but she doesn't really know what's going on. But here, we get a very different view of Mary and her response. Famous German pastor, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he said this in a sermon on this very text. He said, this song of Mary's is the oldest Advent hymn. It is the most passionate, most vehement, one might almost say most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. It is not the gentle, sweet, dreamy Mary that we so often see portrayed in pictures, but the passionate, powerful, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks here. None of the sweet, sugary, or childish tones that we find so often in our Christmas hymns, but a hard, strong, uncompromising song of bringing down rulers from their thrones and humbling the lords of this world, of God's power and of the powerlessness of men. That's a strong statement about Mary's words here. And let me show you what he's talking about. I just want to read this song to you in full, and then we'll break it down. Look at verses 46 through 56 of chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has sown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Notice, Mary's not confused about what's going on. Remember, this is a young, poor, teenage girl, and yet she's not naive or scared or calm, so we can finally answer that famous Christian song, yes, Mary knew. <laughs> Mary did know. She did. Like She seems to know more than anyone else in this whole story what God's doing because she's connecting her present experience with what she's learned from the Old Testament. Mary's not inventing something or making something up new. She sees God's story being woven throughout history, and she's actually quoting and alluding to many different verses from the Old Testament, especially... She's thinking of Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2. Do you remember Hannah? That was Samuel's mother. She was also childless, unable to get pregnant like Elizabeth, being abused by other women because of her shame. She goes to the temple and cries out to God with this incredible prayer, and God gives her son, Samuel, and she gives him to the Lord. I want to encourage you this week in your, in your quiet time, go look at 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song. And Mary's song in Luke 1, I want you to compare those two. This should really strike us that when Mary is pressed, Scripture comes out. You see that? She's not quoting word for word necessarily, but it's clear that Mary is so steeped in the Word of God that she studied it and memorized it to a point that when she's moved to praise, Scripture comes out of her mouth. 
And this is a great example for us to exemplify. You know, one of the greatest tools I've learned for my prayer life is praying the Bible. (laughs) This is taking the word of God and using it to form your prayers back to him. It's really helped me. It's helped to freshen and deepen my my prayer life. And, And it just so happens that the guy who wrote a book called Praying the Bible is coming to our church. So I got a shameless plug for you this morning. The 5S conference you've heard about in January. If you have not signed up, you need to do it. Okay? Because we're going to learn a lot about this topic from the man himself. He wrote the book. He, as he's going he's to explain to us, as we see, this is a biblical pattern. The, the word of God that Mary's hidden in her heart, it comes out in praise to God. And this praise has three parts that I want to show you. Look with me first. Mary shares what she's feeling and experienced. Look at verses 46 and 47. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. All right, this is the key to understanding Mary's heart. She says her soul, the, the depth of her being, this is her heart. She's magnifying the Lord. What does it mean to magnify something? Well, it means to glorify, to, to show the greatness of what something is. And this is Mary's heart. She's not primarily concerned with herself. Right? She's not pitying herself because things are going to be hard. She's not congratulating herself for how special she is. She wants people to see how great God is. And she does this by the second line, by rejoicing in God, my Savior. You know, we glorify God when we rejoice in who he is. God looks great when we find our joy and life in him. And the greatest joy we have, as Mary says, is knowing that God is our Savior. Now, I believe Mary was a very important person, someone we should study and know from Scripture. I I believe she's an example. She's an encouragement to us, and and we should, as Luke 1 says, call her blessed. But look, we know that some people in the church have kind of taken things a little farther than that. Uh, Most notably, the Catholic Church esteems Mary to the point that they actually pray to her. And they don't view her as God, but they view her as accepting their prayers and taking them to Jesus on their behalf. There are also teachings that Mary lived a sinless life, that she remained a virgin forever, and even that at the end of her life she never died, but she was taken straight to heaven like Elijah. Guys, these are teachings I hope you know that are not found in the Bible. And we see Mary herself tell us the opposite. She admits that she too needs a Savior just like us. And I think this is more encouraging than thinking Mary was perfect or somehow got assumed into heaven. Mary was just like us. She was a sinner too. She was human. She had struggles. And yet she was used by God to perform or to be a part of one of the greatest miracles ever. So while we don't pray the rosary or pray to Mary, we can still honor her and follow her example because she saw God as her Savior and she glorified him with her life. That's the first part of the song. And the second part, Mary expresses what God has done for her. Look at verses 48 and 49. She says, he's, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary praises God for the work that he's done in her. He's looked on her humble estate. Notice those words, humble estate. Again, we're reminded that there's nothing particularly significant about Mary to warrant God picking her to be the mother of Jesus. She wasn't wealthy or well-known or powerful. She was a young, humble girl, and yet God has chosen to look on her. 
as a result, since all generations will call her blessed. That includes us. We're here today. We continue to point to Mary and to learn about her. And and she points us to the might and the holiness of God. She understands God is all-powerful. He can do anything. She understands God's holy, that he's separate from everything else. He's unlike anything else. So Mary expresses who God is and what he's doing. That's the second part. And then the third part of her song, Mary praises God for what he's done in the past and what he continues to do today. And this is the part that's a little bit unusual. Look at verses 51 through 53. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Again, this is Old Testament language. Mary is hitting on a huge theme of the Bible that we often miss. It's that God is turning things upside down. God is reversing what we might expect. He's doing the unusual. And this is the part that kind of stirs people up sometimes. In fact, that I read in history, there are some governments around the world who have actually banned Mary's song from being read in public because these words resonated with people they wanted to keep oppressed. You know, and still today, because we live in a hyper-politicized culture and everyone has to have a label, we hear any talk of caring for those in need or helping the poor or the marginalized, and we think that's liberal. Or some people say, oh, that's that's woke. Friends, that's nonsense. A major theme in the Bible is God's heart for those in need. Whether that be the poor, the hungry, the oppressed and mistreated, the orphan and the widow, the sojourner, we see it over and over again. God loves and he's drawn to people who are beat down and downtrodden and mistreated. That's not political. God is a God of justice and care for all people, especially the people who need it the most. And no one demonstrated this better than Jesus, who is God. (laughs) He gravitated towards lepers and prostitutes and the poor. He fed, he healed, he lifted people up. And he called for us to care for the least of these. You know, I think sometimes we get so bent on keeping the root of the gospel central that we miss the fruit of the gospel. Like we want to make sure that we know the root of the gospel, the message that Jesus says. We don't want to add anything to that. But when you have the root of the gospel, there's going to be fruit from the gospel. You got me? There are going to be implications for how we live, how we spend our money, how our marriage is, how we treat our family, how we work at our job. And one of the fruits of the gospel we see in the Bible is a care for people in need. In fact, the Apostle Paul, the gospel man himself, and we've seen it in Romans, said that remembering the poor was an essential part of his ministry. He said this in Galatians 2, 9 through 10. He said, when James and Cephas and John... Perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Listen to this. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Did you know that was a part of Paul's ministry? He preached the gospel, he planted churches, but he was eager to help the poor. My point in all of this is that Mary's song is unusual because she is sharing with us the unusual heart of our God. We have a God who does not prioritize the rich, the powerful, or the famous. He will instead bring those people down and send them away empty. He will humble the proud and the haughty who think they have no need for God. And he will draw near and exalt those who are low and needy. God gravitates to the lowly 
to the humble. He uses the weak to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. And Mary knows this because she's living proof. She's young, poor, an unknown virgin girl, and yet out of all the women to carry the Messiah, out of all the experienced or wealthy or privileged mothers that God could have chosen, he chose her. Why? Because God's flipping the world upside down. He does the unusual, the thing no one would expect. While we prioritize strength and power and charisma, God displays his glory the most through the least likely people. This is the heart of the Bible, which is why Mary concludes with this reference to to God's covenant with her people, Israel, through Abraham. She understands that God's doing what he's always done. He's fulfilling his plan. She, She knows. Again, she knows that she's about to see firsthand the greatest miracle that's ever taken place. And she did. Mary lived during the most significant 30-year period in the history of the world when God turned everything upside down. So as we close our message this morning, I want to share with you quickly two things we learn from this passage as we behold the unusual. Here's the first. Number one, we see that God's ways are unusually personal. I shared last week that Luke opens his gospel story after 400 years of silence in the nation of Israel. 400 years. There's been no prophet, no king, no word from God. And God enters the story. After all this time, he steps in in the most personal way possible. He comes to people who were beat down politically by the Roman Empire, people who were hopeless for any change. And right in the midst of those people, he doesn't choose the religious leaders. He doesn't choose the well-off or the well-known. He chooses to visit this young Jewish girl and her family. He brings to her the miracle of life in the most impossible way, and he uses her to rock, to feed, to care for the most important person who would ever walk this planet. Our God is an intensely personal God. He's not sitting back in heaven in his rocking chair just watching things happen. He did not wind up the world like a clock and let it go. His arms are not folded. He is not distracted. He is not too busy, and he is not distant. Our God is here. And he's intimately involved in the details of our lives. He is actively working in all things to the glory of his name and the good of his people. Even when we don't see it. Even when we can't feel it. Luke later records these words from Jesus in Luke chapter 12 verses 6 through 7. Jesus said this, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God knows every sparrow, every bird in the sky, and he's numbered the very hairs on your head. Think about that. That's how close and involved God is in your life. He knows every single hair on your head, even those who are losing theirs like mine. And Christmas is the ultimate display of our personal God. That he would leave his throne and come here to the earth to take on a human flesh and experience all the pain and difficulty and challenges of being human and the pain, you know, from the manger to the cross. Jesus is the epitome of a personal God who loves and cares for people. So this Advent season, 
Don't lose sight of what God wants to do in you personally. Jesus came and lived and died for you. And he wants to know you. He wants to work in your life. That's the heart of the story of Christmas. That's the whole point. What is God doing in your life personally? Where is he working? What is he teaching you? How is he blessing you? How is he growing you? How is he challenging you? Use this season to behold an unusually personal God. That's first, and here's the second takeaway from this passage. We see that God's ways are unusually powerful. We see God's power in this story, babies leaping in wombs, virgins becoming pregnant, but we also see Mary telling us about God's power in some big ways. God is redeeming and saving his people through Jesus. He's visiting those who are in need and he's giving them new life. He's scattering the crowd and the, the proud and judging those who think they're up high. And he's using those who are forgotten and overlooked to display his glory. See, God loves to take broken situations and, and display his healing. He, he delights in taking what seems small and insignificant and displaying his power. When you are at your lowest point, listen to me. When you are at your lowest point and you feel helpless and powerless and hopeless, that is the exact point when God comes closest. When you feel like you've got nothing left to give and don't know what to do or where to turn, God says, finally, there's someone I can work with. In situations where we might walk away or give up or shield our eyes or cast it off as hopeless, these are the very situations that God enters into and transforms. This, again, is the heart of the Christmas story. Jesus enters the world in a miraculously powerful way, and yet it's completely ordinary. So how might God want to display his unusual power through you this Advent season? I got one idea we can think about today. If God exalts those of humble estate, if he fills the hungry with good things, then maybe we should too. If Jesus came to seek and save the lost, we should too. If God cares for the least of these, we can and should too. I challenge you to think of a way this Advent season to think less about yourself and more about those who are in need. The poor, the hungry, the hurting, the beat down, the overlooked. How can you display the power of God to them? How can you show them the love of Christ? Look, we can share Jesus and the hope of the world with the lost. We should, but we can also give our money to people in need. We can spend time serving at a nonprofit or a homeless shelter or a ministry. We can reach out to a neighbor or a family member or a friend who we know is struggling and going through a difficult time. It's unfortunate that Christmas has become such a consumer-driven, self-focused time for many people. We think about food and presents and spending money we focus on ourselves and our own families it can't be that way for followers of Jesus it shouldn't be that way Advent is a time to be different it's a time to be like Christ to give rather than take to lift up rather than push down to glorify God rather than self to run to the broken rather than away in the world's eyes this will seem a bit unusual. This will seem contrary to them. But that's exactly what we want. Because then we have an opportunity to tell about our unusual God. 
who works in unusual ways to save sinners like us and who wants to redeem and transform all things for his glory. That's what Advent is about. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. And in fact, before I pray, as you have your head bowed, don't close your eyes. I want you to keep your Bible open. And as Lisa comes and plays some music for us, I want you to look again at Mary's song. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. I want you to read through that for a moment in silence and just meditate on God's word. What might God be calling you to do this Christmas season? How might he be working in a personal way? How might he be using you to display his power? Would you take a minute to just meditate on that and I'll close this out in prayer. Father, I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts. To each individual person sitting before me, would you take this word and speak to them, show them how they can live this out, how they can have the heart of you. God, give us your heart, your heart for the, the lowly, the humble, the beat down. Lord, help us to have care for people in need. Lord, help us this Advent season to think less of ourselves, but to do the unusual thing, to actually give more than we take. To spend more time thinking about others than enjoying ourselves. To not get caught up in the festivities and miss the people around us who are hurting. 
God, give us the heart of Jesus. And God, move in our hearts in a unique and mighty way this season. That we might understand Mary's words. That we might too magnify you and rejoice in who you are as our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, how to become a part of a church, what baptism means, or anything else that God's doing in your heart, that's why I and our other elders here at our church are here. We're here to minister and talk to you, and I encourage you to see us after the service or any time during the week. You can reach out so we can help you process any decision God has for you. This time we're going to watch a Lottie Moon video. You may know that Lottie Moon offering is something Southern Baptists have been doing for a long time to support international missions around the world. Christmas time is the time we do that. And from what I understand, this week is when the offering officially kicks off. There's lots of guides and resources online. If you go to the IMB's website, you can read about missionaries around the world. You can find a prayer guide to pray for different missionaries. We're going to watch a quick video that shows us a glimpse of what we give, and then I'll come back and pray for our offering. There were so many different things that I had to die to and realize I have no power to do these things. I'm just asking God, do for them what I cannot do. Show yourself to your people. Show up. We wanted to go to where there was lostness, northern Mozambican coast. The centuries of Islam that were there, witchcraft, my first thought is, what have I done? How am I going to be effective? This is the beginning of a battle. We came in 2004. With my one-year-old firstborn. All of our kids come and minister together with us. Children open the door to build those relationships with the women, how to share their faith, how to reach out to their family, where it was much more closed to the gospel. But there is a sacrifice involved. Witchcraft in this culture is what sustains their life. Who you marry, your health, whether or not you catch fish. Infant mortality rate is high. They live in fear of something happening to their children. When people come to Christ, for them it is a life and death decision. Is this worth my life? Adelina was a very well-known witch doctor. After about a year and a half, we're getting ready to pray, and Adelina just says, I want to get rid of my witchcraft and take down the witch doctor hut. So Sunday afternoon, after church, when that wall fell down, it was just a complete release to God. I no longer need to be afraid of these things. Our work in the local village has spread across the bay through the influence of, of family members. They had made professions of faith. We're starting to see national believers go out as missionaries through persecution, through hard times. God has galvanized their faith far beyond anything that I could teach. Be still and know that I'm God. Adelina starts telling her story about how she has new life in Christ. been faithful to show himself in ways that I never would have expected him to show himself. It's only the work of the Holy Spirit. 
that tide is turning and momentum is building that God's kingdom is coming to this coastline. Isn't that an amazing story to know that there are people all over the world like that who literally give up everything. They move across the world, across oceans to take the gospel to places where it's never been. And we're blessed to be a part of that. And so that's why we call you to give. Every dollar you give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes to support missionaries just like that. You can give online. You can also just designate your giving in the basket in the back. Another cool thing going on this Christmas season is our Christmas meal bags that our Women on Mission led. You'll see out by this door there are several food bags that people have packed. And so I just want to pray for that. Uh, pray for our Lottie Moon offering. Pray for our normal offering. We're still taking up our regular offering too. Uh, don't forget you can give online. You can also drop your offering in the back there. But let me, let's go to the Lord in prayer for all that he's doing. Father, we rejoice that you have given us so many opportunities to be on mission for you and to have an impact in the world. That you've given us a church who has a heart for the mission. So God, thank you for all those who give to the Lottie Moon offering. I pray that that money would be multiplied to the glory of your name and that many sons would come to glory. Lord, I, I thank you for the Christmas meal bags that many have packed. And Lord, we commission them that they would go to homes who also need to hear about the love of Christ and that it would reach the people in need. God, I thank you for those who give weekly and regularly to our offering, who sustain all the abilities and, and programs and things we're able to do as a church. God, take what we give, whatever it may be, and multiply it and bless it, that it may go further than anything we could do on our own. So God, thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, again, if you're a guest this morning, I, I do want to say thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for joining us and, and worshiping with us. I'd love a chance to connect with you after, a, after the service. A couple of announcements before we go. The 5S conference, which I mentioned in my sermon, is still taking registrations. If you've not signed up, go online today. All you have to do is jump on the website. It takes about two minutes. And make sure you go ahead and get signed up for that. It's going to be really exciting in January. Christmas Eve is coming. What about 19 days? Who's counting? But we will have a service here on Christmas Eve at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock, we will have what's called a family service, just one service. Uh, so it's going to be really exciting. It'll be about, it's usually shorter, about 45 minutes. I won't preach that long, so don't you worry. We'll all get to dinner on time. Uh, but make sure you come and invite people. And speaking of invitations, on that back table, Tim Hodgson, will you grab one of those Christmas Eve cards and hold it up? We have invite cards that are really beautiful that Jill Hogan, our marketing director, has designed. That is for you to take, not for yourself, but to give and invite someone else. So if you would take five of those and go to your neighbors and invite them or your coworkers or, or friends or family, take as many of those as you will and give them out. Let's invite people here at 4 o'clock. We also have our classic Christmas Eve service, which is much much more formal service at the Antioch campus at 11 p.m. That's late. But i got to be there, so I'm going to be up, so you need to come too. But that will be on 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve. And last thing, last thing, today after the 11 o'clock service, Pastor Timothy, uh, who some of you know from Pune, India, it's another ministry we support. Uh, he runs an orphanage there. He's going to be here after the 11 o'clock service out in the lobby with Rob McCulley and some others who lead that India mission trip. So if you support Food for His Glory, you give 10, 15, now it's $15 a month to those kids, and you want to meet the guy who runs it, he's going to be here. And I want to encourage you to shake his hand. All right, I promise, that's all I got. So let's stand together. Let's say our spoken word.
to God and over one another. Would you say this with me? May the God of hope fill you with all joy. Amen. You were sent.
Good morning. Good morning. Morning, everyone. Um, this morning, we're going to start out with a song that asks a whole bunch of questions. And the questions, why would, why would a king lay aside his crown? Why would the, the Lord of all creation come on our behalf? Why would he die on our behalf? Why would he be born as a child? All questions um, that will be posed today through the song service and through the message you'll hear. So let's stand today and let's start with a song that you all know. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch our keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Could Christian fear for sinners here? The silent word is pleading. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and Amen. Well, good morning. You can be seated and let me welcome you to Blue Valley Baptist Church here at our Ridgeview campus. We are so 
honored and excited to have you today on the second day of that second week of Advent, especially if you're a guest. If you've not been here before or maybe haven't been here in some time, we love having guests. We love having all kinds of people join us for worship. So if you are a guest, we have a simple way for you to get, are you trying to trip me, Jeremy? Yeah, uh, we have a simple way for guests to get connected if you follow the screen. That way, through a text message, you can find out more about Blue Valley. Like I said, today is the second week of Advent. I told you last week where I grew up, at least in my home church, I, I, we didn't celebrate Advent. It was just Christmas. I didn't really know what Advent was. Did anybody else grow up like that? Or maybe you grew up on the other side where you always have done Advent. It's a big part of tradition for you. What? The other side. The other side. Yeah, we won't. <laughs> We won't talk about them. No. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> the peanut gallery. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I've come to really like Advent because it's a lot of intentionality. That word Advent, it means coming. And there's two kind of things we think about in terms of coming. Number one, we think of Jesus' past coming. Right, when he came the first time as a baby in a manger, that we sing those songs, we think about that story, we have our nativity scenes, but we often miss the second part. It's the second coming. Did you know that Jesus is coming back? <laughs> That's what we're looking forward to in the same way that the people in the Old Testament had that expectation and that longing for Jesus, we have the same today. We want Jesus, I don't know about you, I want Jesus to come back. Like soon, uh, things are getting bad. I want him to come back. And, and that's our desire. And Advent is a time we, we express that as we sing about Christ. And, and we make it, this bottom line, we make it all about Jesus. That's what this is about. That's why we're here today. We're going to sing about Jesus. We're going to talk about Jesus. It's just, it's just Jesus. That's why we're here. And so I'm so grateful when you come and you worship. And I want you to know you're a part of this too. This is not stage and audience. This is church. And we worship Jesus together. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Let's get our hearts, our minds ready and focused so that we can think deeply, feel deeply, and sing loudly to him. Father, thank you for this season that you've given us where we slow down, we look intentionally at what you did 2,000 years ago when you sent your son Jesus for us. And Lord, we long for the day that Christ is returns and we say, come Lord Jesus, come. But thank you, Lord, in the meantime that you're here with us to encourage us, to, to carry us. And, Lord, I pray that this service would, be, would serve that purpose, that people would be renewed and strengthened in this, in this moment. As we sing these songs, as we ponder what you did long ago and what you're still doing today and what's still to come, that we would be renewed on eagle's wings, that we would walk and not grow faint, that we would be strengthened, Lord, before you. Lord, may this be a service that is pleasing to you, that is all about Jesus, that nothing else gets in the way of seeing how great and awesome your son Jesus is. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now we get to hear from our amazing choir, who's done a great job.
Let's stand together. Oh, man.
Please remain standing for a passage of scripture. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angels said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's continue to worship. What kind of gift do you bring to a king? He's asking for all of us. A broken and contrite heart. He will not despise. He wants all of us. Let's sing. Over the skies of Bethlehem appeared a star While angels sang to lowly shepherds Three wise men seeking truth traveled from afar Hoping to find the child from heaven Falling on their knees, they bow before the humble Prince of Peace. I bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I see. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're Sun cannot compare to the glory of your love. There is no shadow in your presence. No mortal man would dare to stand before your throne, before the Holy One of Heaven. And it's only by your blood, and it's only through your mercy, Lord, I come. I bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I see. Jesus, may you receive the honor. that I see. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. 
bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. Let's pray. Father, we do bring our offering to you this morning. We bring our hearts knowing that that's all you ask of us. You don't ask us to come in perfection or come through good deeds or good reputation, come without any sin or mistake, but you ask us to come as you are and you will change us and who you want us to be by the power of your son, Jesus. So Lord, we come as we are. We come knowing that we're your children, your sons and daughters. And Lord, we bring you our lives, our hearts. We bring you our full attention in this moment as we look towards your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through this story today. No matter how familiar or how new it might be, Lord, would you bring us a fresh word from your heart to ours. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you can be seated. And let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I love the Christmas season and all the things that come along with it. It's a lot of fun this time of year. And, and what makes Christmas kind of extra special is the different traditions that we all have. I'm sure in your family, in your life, there are certain things you do every year at Christmas, like clockwork. And there are some traditions that I understand. Like spending time with family, eating good food, singing songs, looking at lights. Those make logical sense to me. But then there are some traditions that I don't understand, like you got to admit, there are some Christmas traditions that are kind of unusual. Like, I'm wondering, how, how did this come to be? Who started this? For example, let's just start with the obvious here. Who was the first person to cut down a tree and put it in their house? Like, I'm imagining, it's the way I think of it, I'm imagining some husband who wants to really make the holidays special. You know, he hasn't been the best husband lately, so he's trying to think of something nice to do for his wife. And he thinks, you know what? I'm going to go cut down a tree and put it in the house. And she's going to love it, right? So he goes out, he cuts down a tree, he brings it in. His wife's like, what are you doing with a tree in the, in the house? He's like, this, this is for you, sweetie. I want to do something special for you. That's a tree. What are we going to do with a tree in the house? I thought, you know, maybe we could put some lights on it. We could find some old trinkets to hang on it, you know, make it look nice. It's a tree in the house with bugs and animals and all that. Okay, so that's probably not how the Christmas tree got started, but that's the story I like to tell myself. I, I do love having a tree up and the lights. It's very nice. My wife really loves it. And does anybody have a real tree this year? Very brave. Very brave. Good for you. Yeah, I, it's too much work for me. I go with the fake stuff. But it's still, I think it is a little unusual to put a tree in your living room. There's also things like hanging the stockings from the fireplace. Who started hanging their laundry from the mantle? 
<laughs> and then somebody's like, hey, let's put some stuff in there. <laughs> let's, let's give gifts in there. This is a little kind of weird. And don't get me started on the mistletoe and ugly sweaters and fruitcake and elf on the shelf and eggnog and the weirdest song ever written in humanity, The Twelve Days of Christmas. I'm sorry, but if someone were to get me swans, geese, hens, doves, and a partridge in a pear tree, that would be a little much. A little much, don't you think? Not to mention, I, I still don't know what a Yule log is. Do you know what a Yule log is, Jeremy? Yeah, I have no idea. My point is, many of the things we do at this time of year, they've become traditions. We've accepted them, and we don't really stop to think how unusual they might be to someone who's never celebrated Christmas before. You know, in the biblical, Christmas story is really not much different. I think we tend to do the same thing. We've, we've heard it so many times. We, we become so familiar with it that we miss how truly unusual this story is. We saw last week in our first week of Advent something quite unusual. Two angels appeared. One angel actually appeared to two different people to announce an unexpected pregnancy. One was a guy named Zechariah. He was priest, a priest, and he was quite shocked to find that his wife was going to be pregnant after uh, being of significant age, it's a nice way to say it, and not being able to have children. The other was a young girl named Mary who was even more shocked because, well, she was a virgin. She was saving herself for her future husband, Joseph. But what made these two pregnancy announcements even more unexpected was that the angel was what he said about these two baby boys. The first one, his name was John, he was going to make ready the people for the coming of the Lord, for God coming here to us. Seems like a big deal. Until we learn that the second baby named Jesus is God coming to us here. He's the Savior of the world. It, the whole scene is meant to be startling and surprising because although the people of God were desperate for salvation and looking for a Savior, no one saw things unfolding like this. This morning, we're going to continue walking through Luke's account of the coming of Christ with a message entitled, Behold the Unusual. Look with me at Luke chapter 1. Let's start walking through verses 39 through 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We can only imagine the emotions that Mary felt when she got that news from the angel. I'm guessing she probably wanted to talk to someone about what had happened, what she'd heard. So it seems that one of the first things she does is go seek out her older and wiser relative, Elizabeth. Elizabeth had also been mentioned by the angel, so she probably wanted to see for herself that she too was pregnant with a miraculous birth. So Mary enters the home, and as soon as Elizabeth even hears her voice, did you see what happened? The baby leapt. I learned in the first service, it's not leaped. The baby leapt in her womb. I'm struggling with grammar today. We talk about beholding the unusual. If you've had kids like me, you've probably felt your kids kick in the womb. Isn't that pretty startling? The first time you feel it kick, you're like, oh, no, it's a lie. It's, it's something's going on in there. It's scary, but to imagine the baby leaping in the womb, to 
this is, this is wild. And so John the Baptist, before he's even born, he's already fulfilling his purpose of announcing the coming of Jesus. He's still in the womb. We see also Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, which is also pretty incredible. We know today all of us as believers are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. That wasn't the case in this time. This was before that. Not everyone had this kind of experience with God. So, so God moves in her in this way. She cries out with this prophetic voice about Mary. She says, Mary, you are blessed by God. And most importantly, she identifies Mary as the mother of her Lord. Did you see that? That language is so important because that word Lord, it's the same word we translate in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the name of God. Elizabeth is saying, Mary, your baby is God. He's my Lord. How did she know this when Mary had just become pregnant? Well, she knows it because God has revealed it to her. She's been filled with the Holy Spirit, and her immediate response is to bring praise to Jesus as Lord. Again, imagine this young virgin girl. She's hearing her older, wiser relative, probably someone she's looked up to her whole life, who is now saying all these things about her and her baby. What was going through Mary's mind? What was she thinking? Well, thankfully, we get a little insight into Mary's heart. Uh, Luke actually recorded for us Mary's response as she breaks out into what many historians believe was a song. It's come to be called the Magnificat. You may see that in your Bible, that heading there. That title is based on the first word of Mary's song in Latin, the word Magnificat, which means magnify. And this song is interesting. It's not exactly what you might expect from Mary. It's, it's a bit unusual because it flies in the face of how we typically view and think of Mary. We, we see Mary on TV or in the nativity scenes. You know, we, we usually view her as being this silent, sweet figure. She's calm and composed and just going with the flow, but she doesn't really know what's going on. We get a very different view of Mary in her response here. Famous German pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he preached a sermon on this text, and he said this. He said, this song of Mary's is the oldest Advent hymn. It is the most passionate, most vehement, one might almost say most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. It is not the gentle, sweet, dreamy Mary that we so often see portrayed in pictures, but the passionate, powerful, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks here. None of the sweet sugary or childish tones that we find so often in our Christian hymns, but a hard, strong, uncompromising song of bringing down rulers from their thrones and humbling the lords of this world, of God's power and of the powerlessness of men. That's a strong statement about Mary's words here. And let me show you what he's talking about. I just want to read this song in full. Listen to this, and then we will break it down. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Isn't that interesting? Mary is not confused about what's going on. Remember, this is a poor, young, teenage girl, and yet she is not naive or scared or calm. Contrary, I think we can finally answer the song we've been singing all these years. Mary knew. (laughs) Mary did know. (laughs) She knows more than anyone else in this story what God is doing because she's connecting her personal experience with what she's learned from the Old Testament. Mary's not inventing this. She's not making up something brand new. But she sees God's story being woven throughout history. And she's actually quoting and alluding to many verses and themes from the Bible, from the Old Testament. Especially, it seems that Mary was thinking of Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2. Do you remember that? Do you remember Hannah? She was Samuel's mother who was childless, unable to get pregnant, being abused by other women because of her shame. And she goes to the temple and she's sobbing and crying and begging God for a child and has this incredible prayer. And then she becomes pregnant with Samuel and she gives him to the Lord. I want to encourage you this week as in your quiet time, go back to 1 Samuel 2. And compare Hannah's prayer with Mary's in Luke 1. You're going to see a lot of things that connect. And this should strike us that when Mary is pressed, Scripture comes out. She's not quoting word for word necessarily, but it's clear that Mary was so steeped in the Word of God. She has studied it and memorized it so as a teenager. Kids, teenagers, listen to me. Mary, even from her youngest age, just like you, if you go to Awana, and student, she's learning and memorizing Scripture. So when she's moved to praise, what comes out? She speaks Scripture. And this is a good example for us. One of the greatest tools I've learned from my prayer life is praying the Bible. This is taking the Word of God and using it to form your prayer back to Him. And it's really helped to freshen and to deepen my prayer life. And it just so happens that the guy who literally wrote the book called Praying the Bible is coming to our church. Did you know this? At the 5S conference in January that I've been telling you, shameless plug, to sign up for. (laughs) You need to go do that today. He's going to be there, and we're going to learn a lot more from the man himself. And he's going to show us, just as we see here, that this is a biblical pattern. The word of God that Mary had hidden in her heart comes out in praise to God. And this praise has three parts that I want to show you. First, Mary shares what she's feeling and experiencing. Look at verses 46 and 47. I love this. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I mean, this is the whole key to understanding Mary's heart. She says her soul, the depth of her being in my heart, she she magnifies the Lord. That's magnificat. What does it mean to magnify something? It means to glorify, to to show the greatness of something else. That's Mary's heart. She is not primarily concerned with herself. She's not pitying herself for the difficulty she's going to deal with. She's not celebrating herself because of how lucky and blessed she is. She wants people to see the greatness and glory of God. And she does this by the second line, she says, by rejoicing in God, my Savior. Look, that's how we glorify God. We glorify Him and we rejoice in Him. When people see that God is the joy of our lives, He is glorified. He looks great. And the greatest joy we have is knowing God as our Savior, as Mary says. This brings up a good point. I believe Mary is a very important person to study, to know from Scripture. She's very important to this story. 
I believe she serves as an example and encouragement to us. In Luke chapter 1, I agree, we should call her blessed. But we know that some in the Christian tradition have taken things further than that. Most notably, the Catholic Church esteems Mary to the point that they actually pray to her. They do not worship her as God, but they believe that she will take their prayers and take them to Jesus on their behalf. There are also teachings that Mary was sinless, that she lived a sinless life, that she remained a virgin forever, and even that when she died, she didn't die. She was actually taken straight into heaven at the end of her life like Elijah. I think you probably know these are teachings that are not found in the Bible. We see Mary herself tell us she too needs a Savior. And I think this is more encouraging than thinking Mary was perfect or that she was assumed into heaven somehow. Mary was just like us. She was a sinner. She was human. She had problems. And yet she was the one who was used by God in perhaps the greatest miracle ever. That's why we don't pray the rosary or pray to Mary. We can still honor her and follow her example. She saw God as her Savior and she glorified him with her life. That's the first part of the song. The second part, Mary expresses what God has done for her. Look at verse 48 and 49. She says, For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary praises God for the great work he's doing in her. He's looked on her humble estate. Did you see that? This tells us again, we're reminded that there's nothing particularly significant about Mary to warrant God picking her to be the mother of Jesus. She wasn't wealthy or well-known or powerful. She was a young, humble girl, and yet God chose to look on her. As a result, all generations will call her blessed. We're proof of that today as we continue to learn about Mary And she points us to the might and to the holiness of God. Mary understood that God is all-powerful, that he can do anything. And she also understood that he's holy, that he's set apart. He's unlike anything else. See, Mary accurately understands and expresses who God is and what he's doing because she knew the God of the Bible. That's the second part. And then in the third part of her song, Mary praises God for what he's done throughout history and what he's doing today. This is the part That seems a bit unusual. Look at verses 51 to 53. She says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Again, this is Old Testament language. Mary is hitting on a huge theme of the Bible that we often miss. It's that God is turning things upside down. He's reversing what we might expect. He's doing the unusual. And this is the part that sometimes stirs people up. Did you know, in fact, I I read that in history there's been some world governments that have actually banned Mary's song from being read publicly. Because her words so resonated with people that they wanted to keep oppressed. It fired them up. And still today... Because we live in this hyper-politicized culture where everyone has to have a label and everybody has to be on a side. We hear any talk of caring for those in need or helping the poor or helping the marginalized, and we think that's liberal. Or some people think, oh, that's, that's woke, right? Friends, that, that's nonsense. A major theme in the Bible is God's heart for those in need. 
whether that be the poor, the hungry, the oppressed and mistreated, the orphan and the widow, the sojourner. God loves and is drawn to people who are beat down and downtrodden and mistreated. This is not political. God is a God of justice and care for all people, especially those who need it the most. No one demonstrated this better than Jesus, who is God. He, he gravitated towards lepers and prostitutes and the poor. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He lifted up the broken. And he called us to care for the least of these. Sometimes I think we get so bent on keeping the root of the gospel central that we miss the fruit of the gospel. Like we want to make sure that we know the root of the gospel, the message that Jesus saves by his death and his resurrection. We don't want to add anything to that. We don't want to take anything away. But when you have the root of the gospel, there's going to be fruit from the gospel. There are going to be implications for how we live. In other words, the gospel, believing in Jesus, should affect how we, how we talk to people, how we spend our money, how our marriage functions, how we work at our job. And one of the fruits of the gospel is a care for people in need. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he was the gospel man himself, we've seen in Romans. He said that remembering the poor was an essential part of his ministry. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 2, 9 through 10. He's recounting his ministry. He says, when James and Cephas and John perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Listen to this, verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul preached the gospel. He planted churches, but he was also eager to help the poor. My point in all this talk is Mary's song is unusual because she's sharing with us the unusual heart of God. We have a God who does not prioritize the powerful or the rich or the famous. He will instead bring those people down and send them away empty. He will humble those who are proud and haughty and think they have no need for God. And he will draw near and exalt those who are low and kicked down and needy. God gravitates to the lowly, to the humble. He uses the weak to shame the strong, the foolish to shame the wise. And Mary knows this because she's living proof. She's a young, poor, unknown, virgin girl, and yet out of all the women to carry the Messiah, out of all the experienced or wealthy or privileged people and mothers that God could have chosen, he picked her. Why? He's flipping the world upside down. He does the unusual, the thing that no one would expect. While we prioritize strength and power and charisma, God displays his glory the most through the least likely people. This is the heart of the Bible. Which is why Mary concludes with this reference to God's covenant with her people through Abraham. She understands God's just doing what he's always done. She's experienced the fulfillment of this plan. Mary seems to know that she's about to see firsthand the greatest miracle of God that's ever been done. And she did. She lived during the most significant 30-year period in the history of the world when God turned everything upside down. So as we close our message this morning, I want to give you two things we learn from this passage as we behold the unusual. Two things real quick. Here's the first. 
Number one, God's ways are unusually personal. I shared last week that Luke opens his gospel story after 400 years of silence in the nation of Israel. There had been no prophet, no king, no word from God. And it's then when God enters the story in the most personal way possible. He comes to people who were being politically hurt and abused, to people who were beat down and hopeless. And in the midst of those people, he doesn't choose the religious leaders or the well-connected or the well-known. He chooses to visit this young Jewish girl and her family. He chooses to bring to her the, the miracle of life in the most impossible way. And he uses her to protect, to provide, to rock, and to feed the most important person who would ever walk this planet. Our God is an intensely personal God. He is not sitting back in heaven just in, in his rocking chair just watching things unfold. He did not wind up the world like a clock and just let it go and run its course. His arms are not folded. He's not distracted. He's not too busy. He's not distant. Our God is here, and he's intimately involved in the details of our lives. He's actively working all things to bring glory to his name and good to his people, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it. Luke later records these words from Jesus to encourage believers. Jesus said in Luke 12, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than sparrows. God knows every single bird in the sky. He's numbered the very hairs on your head. That's how close and intimate and involved God is. Think about that. He knows every single hair on every single head, even those who are losing theirs, like me. And Christmas is the ultimate display of our personal God, that he would leave his throne in heaven being worshipped day and night by angels to come to the earth, to take on human flesh and experience all the pain and difficulty and struggle of being human. See, from the manger to the cross, Jesus is the epitome of a personal God who loves and cares for people. So this Advent season, don't lose sight of what God wants to do personally in you. Jesus came and lived and died for you. Yes, he died for the world, but he also died for you. And he wants to know you and to work in your life. That's the heart of the story of Christmas. So what is God doing in your life personally? Where is he working? What is he teaching you? How has he blessed you? How is he challenging you and growing you? Use this season to behold an unusually personal God. That's first. And here's the second and last takeaway from this passage. We see God's ways are unusually powerful. We see God's power in this story. Babies leaping in wombs. Virgins becoming pregnant. We also see Mary talking of some Big ways that we see God's power. God is redeeming and saving people through Jesus. He's visiting those who are in need. He's scattering the proud and judging those who are up high. He's using the people that are forgotten and overlooked to display his glory. God loves to take broken situations and display his healing. He delights in taking what seems small and insignificant and displaying his power. Listen to me. When you are at your lowest point, 
When you feel helpless and powerless and hopeless, that is the exact point when God comes closest. When you feel like you've got nothing left to give and don't know what to do and don't know where to turn and don't know how this could possibly turn out good, in any way, God says, finally, there's someone I can work with. In situations where we might walk away or shield our eyes or cast it off as hopeless, these are the very situations that God enters into and transforms. This is the heart of the Christmas story. Jesus enters the world in a miraculously powerful way. Right into the mess of humanity. So how might God want to display his unusual power through you this Advent season? I got one idea that we can think about. If God exalts those of humble estate, if he fills the hungry with good things and cares about the broken and downtrodden, then maybe we should too. If Jesus came to seek and save the lost, maybe we should too. If God cares for the least of these, then maybe we should too. I want to challenge you this morning to think of a way this Advent season to think less about yourself and more about those in need. The poor, the hungry, the hurting, the beat down, the overlooked. How can you display the power of God to them? How can you show them the love of Christ? Look, we can share Jesus and the hope of the world with the lost, and we should, but we can also give our money to people who are in need. We can spend time serving at a nonprofit or a homeless shelter or another ministry. We can reach out to neighbors, to friends, to family members who we know are struggling and going through a difficult time. And it's so unfortunate that Christmas today has become such a consumer-driven, self-focused time. Where we think about food and gifts and spending money and ourselves and our families. But it cannot be that way for followers of Jesus. Advent is a time to be different, to be like Christ. To give rather than take. To lift up rather than push down. To glorify God rather than self. To run to the broken rather than away. In the world's eyes, this will seem unusual. It will seem contrary. But that's exactly what we want. Because then we have an opportunity to tell about our unusual God who works in unusual ways to save sinners like us. And who wants to redeem and restore and transform all things for his glory. That's what Advent is about. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.